Welcome to the Future of Medicine podcast, where we believe that feeling great and living a long time is possible and that your healthcare should help you get there. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Wenzel. My hope is simple, that this show will help you along your journey to becoming the healthiest, strongest, and most powerful version of you possible. Now, let's jump into the show. Hey, everybody. Before we jump in this week's show, I just want to give you a quick overview of the content of this episode. Dr. Malik is a dear friend of mine and also an incredible uh, invasive cardiologist uh, here in Nashville, Tennessee. In this episode, we're going to dive into uh, some of the early contributing factors that we're seeing uh, causing early heart disease in our younger patients, earlier than we ever have in the history of mankind. And here's the punchline. It has a lot to do with diet, specifically high-carbohydrate foods that are highly processed early in childhood, fueling those flames of heart disease. And we're also going to talk at length about a practical approach to risk stratify, how to leverage current diagnostics that are available to you, and a step-by-step approach to how you can assess your risk factor for the number one killer of human beings. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's show. I am very excited to have a guest with us here today, a dear friend of mine and a very talented uh, cardiologist, Dr. Malik. Um, Dr. Farrakh Malik is an, uh, an invasive cardiologist with Centennial Medical Center in downtown Nashville. He has advanced training in heart failure from Oshner in New Orleans. He's presently on faculty at Meharry University and clinical consultant at Centennial Medical Center. He was the previous chair of cardiology at Centennial, and his current area of interest is uh, inflammatory activation in heart failure. Dr. Malik, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Awesome. Well, you know, the, you are one of the busiest men I know, and I, I respect you and what you do, and certainly your your time is very valuable, and I, I really do appreciate you being willing to come on. Why don't, for the listeners, maybe just give a brief overview of some of your training and what an invasive cardiologist is um, and, and how we can better understand who you are. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, so my journey started in Connecticut, uh, where I went to uh, clinical training and subsequently residency training at University of Connecticut, and then... Um, Ended up in New Orleans, Auctioner, for cardiology training. Uh, subsequently finished a year of extra training for heart failure and transplantation uh, and then stayed there on faculty in New Orleans. Uh, as uh, life would have it, we had to move because of Katrina and Nashville was gracious enough to accommodate us. Um, basically, I'm a advanced heart failure cardiologist, but at the same time, I do most of general cardiology, as well as many of the invasive procedures. So if you do heart catheterizations or stents, you're called invasive cardiologist. If you do not do those procedures and just uh, manage uh, general cardiology, then we call them general cardiologist. So I am a general cardiologist with invasive training as well as heart failure training. So it's kind of a jack of... uh, uh, all trades, but master of none, so to speak. <laughs> so what is the difference between that and then looking at what an electrophysiologist might be? So electrophysiologist is is the entirely different uh, category which deals with the electrical problems of the heart. So these uh, cardiologists have additional training besides general cardiology. So I got general cardiology training then I got invasive and heart failure training. So these cardiologists have general training and then they have training in electrophysiology dealing with electrical disorders of the heart such as atrial fibrillation or uh, tachycardias or heart rhythm problems. I tend to explain the difference between the two as simple as the heart has plumbers and it has electricians. Is that an oversimplification? Well, no, I think it's a pretty good simplification, mm-hmm. except that the electricians and plumbers have to work together mm-hmm. for this important organ. And um, uh, these problems are not mutually exclusive, so to speak. Yes, yeah, we do see a lot of overlap. Um, 
when you think about, obviously, there probably isn't, if you care about human beings um, living a long time, and you don't have a primary focus of understanding and uh, dealing with heart disease risk, then you're probably spinning your wheels quite a bit. How would you, for the listeners, just how would you describe to a, a new patient how to think about, how would you instruct somebody to think about heart disease? So the simplest way is that um, um, our circulation is a clean pipe, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so whatever we eat, drink, or consume, uh, that gets into the circulation. And if this stuff begins to attack the pipe, then the pipe responds by buildup of rust and deposits and eventually would clog up. Mm -hmm. And not only clog up, but damage the surrounding structures by leaking into it. So as a human being, you know, we... We are designed to consume particular amount of food or particular kind of food. And um, sometimes the food has components that are inflammatory. Mm -hmm. And when they get into the circulation, they begin to attack some of the lining of the system. Plus some of the metabolic diseases that we have, such as diabetes, uh, or we consume tobacco that has chemicals which have inflammatory properties. So you are putting these chemicals in your body and your body is producing chemicals because of diabetes and other issues. So we have an internal inflammation and then whatever we put in the body is the external inflammation. So we are attacking our pipes from two different ends, Mm -hmm. resulting in what we call hardening of the tubes, uh, which is kind of a generic term for atherosclerosis. Mm-hmm. What would you, how do you think about in a 2020 environment and beyond, how are you thinking about, or how would you instruct people to think about the most significant risk factors kind of in order? Um, or, or do you have, do you think about it in that way? Or So, so I think uh, what we have identified so far is that there are some modifiable risk factors and there are some non-modifiable risk factors. Okay. So non-modifiable risk factors is, for example, your gender, your age. We are going to develop some hardening as we grow older. And then if you have diabetes and high blood pressure, then those factors will attri- contribute to the disease. And those are kind of the non-modifiable risk factors. The modifiable risk factors are, you know, you consume tobacco, you consume alcohol, you don't exercise, uh, you have a high-stressful environment, uh, and then you consume foods which are very pro-inflammatory. Some of these risk factors are modifiable, that you can control it. And, and our biggest strive is to empower our patients to modify the modifiable risk mm-hmm. factors. And uh, the non-modifiable risk factors will hopefully get better if you eat well, take care of the body, uh, so that your risk is decreased, uh, if not eliminated. My research and understanding around the kind of, in I, I actually love that I, I actually don't think about it that way or explain it that way, but I actually really like thinking about it from the modifiable, non-modifiable as a teaching tool and just a way to organize your thoughts. I tend to think of my risk factors for my patients as a, in totality, kind of as a start at the top with the most contributory risk factor, and then kind of work my way, whittle my way down and, and stop on the things that we need work on, you know, is age still considered the number one rich risk factor? I mean, if you live long enough, you're going to develop? Uh, yes and no. Um, obviously, um, age is, is, is non-modifiable. You're going to grow old. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I, let's imagine that the disease is, starts around age 20, and it's going to gradually progress as we grow older. Mm-hmm. And if you add, say, high blood pressure, the disease progression will increase. If you become diabetic, 
the disease progression will increase further. If you start smoking and consume a lot of alcohol and fat-rich foods from animal sources, then you're adding inflammatory components that will speed up the disease further. So you're building this this progressive disease with additional risk factors. So you may develop some disease in your 70s and 80s, but all these risk factors will make this disease appear earlier and earlier. And so you have to look at it from that perspective that the age, gender, and your genetic risk profile is there. You have to modify that by eating well and exercising and try to modify some of your risk profile. And on top of that, if you are hypertensive, take care of the blood pressure. If you're diabetic, aggressive control of diabetes. And if you smoke or consume uh, animal fat protein source of inflammatory markers, then modifying them will help you decrease your risk, not eliminate it. Mm-hmm. I am... Um lost my thought there for just one second but the um i'm curious what you think about as being because from where i'm sitting as a non-cardiologist but certainly working in the er seeing plenty of acute cardiac conditions and working with my primary patients in risk stratifying so that they are decreasing the probability that they have some sort of event i i think about this and I'm I'm posed with the question internally, why does cardiac disease seem to be showing up earlier and more significantly than it has historically? I mean, I think historically it's been a disease of 60-year-old smoking men, right? But But now we're starting to see early 40s, late 30s with with very significant disease that you historically had not seen until the sixth or seventh decade of life with risk factors. Do you have a sense of, am I just imagining that or is that real? And if it is real, do you have a a feeling as to the primary contributors to that? I mean, I have my theories, but I'm just curious what you're thinking. Um, So there are several epidemiological studies Uh, done across uh, various races. And I'm a South Asian, and South Asians have very high risk of premature and aggressive atherosclerosis. Similarly, Pima Indians have a early and progressive diabetic heart disease. So based on these epidemiological studies, it appears that there are certain risks inherent in certain populations. So I will address the South Asian population, for example. So South Asian population have a a species or race-specific risk of what we call um, uh, insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome. And so that results in um, uh, early diabetic indices. And at the same time, they produce a lot of pro-inflammatory markers because of the certain fat uh, deposits that uh, South Asians have, resulting in in a heightened degree of inflammation from a younger age. Now, we have not been able to answer as to why it is, but I think it's the interplay of genetics and certain food preparations that we have in the South Asian population. So coming to the United States uh, part of it, it is it is uh, very apparent that the paradigm has shifted to a certain kind of uh, uh, food preparation uh, that there is a high indulgence of uh, very high carbohydrate rich foods at a younger age with very high proportion of sugar in the mm-hmm. food mm-hmm. Uh, secondly this element of processing the food so as to detoxify and prolong the shelf life of the food have actually resulted in significant metabolic abnormalities. So my gut feeling is that the disease is more progressive and apparent earlier because whatever we are putting in our body in the form of high-carbohydrate, high-processed food, 
with significant inflammatory component have resulted in a an exaggerated expression of disease in a young population plus i think um, uh, the young population is also uh, consumed with uh, consuming um, uh, a higher amount of these uh, energy compounds uh, energy supplements energy drinks uh, as well as um, uh, some of the fast food chains are providing a lot of food processed food uh, which is uh, at a cheaper prices and um, uh, you know it's always uh, 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 a combo deal of a 16-ounce sugar drink, uh, of a trans-fat-rich uh, french fries, mm-hmm. and um, a high-carbohydrate, multi-thousand-calories, fat-rich uh, uh, sauces. And so I think, I think our whole emphasis is now that these two elements have contributed, in my understanding, mm-hmm. to early and progressive atherosclerosis in our population in this country you know that is um that that is a well stated and and i think that in my time in the obesity space it is stunning when you start to dig into pediatric obesity rates um you know and and it has historically been an issue in the u.s and western culture but we're now seeing bariatric surgery at stunning rates in Shanghai and in cultures and cities where obesity has not been a historic problem. We're seeing it in a pediatric population with bariatric surgery. And, And certainly the way humans have been eating in all documented human history took a dramatic change somewhere in the around the 1950s with mass agriculture and a shift to high fructose corn syrup and highly processed carbohydrates in the and the pushing and selling of big breakfast most important meal of the day which which is nothing more than a grape nuts commercial marketing campaign we became fixated with eating early and often and these meals were highly processed highly um um pro metabolic uh creating hyperglucose states, hyperinsulin states at a very early age. Uh, I remember when I came through residency, I was listening to a grand rounds from a cardiologist who said something that was pretty profound. Uh, I'd be curious to get your take on it. He said that we are living in an, in an era, in an age, where it won't be too long before, as a pediatrician, they will have to start dealing with heart disease. Um, because of some of the lipid profiles and the metabolic inflammatory changes that we're already seeing in six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds who are morbidly obese. They're 160 pounds. They already have lipids that are through the roof, triglycerides of three and 400. They already have what looks very much like adult onset type diabetes. Do, Do you get that sense from from some of your colleagues that deal with pediatric cardiology, are you seeing, it sounded kind of out of this world, but as I've started to unpack it, it doesn't actually feel that far fetched given the state of the union with Mm -hmm. pediatric obesity. So I, I, I'm not familiar with pediatric data, but clearly uh, there has been a shift to see more younger people with, with the uh, myocardial infarctions and uh, uh, early onset of coronary artery disease. And I think um, it is likely a multifactorial process. Mm. Uh, some of these young individuals uh, uh, lead a rather invincible state of mind. Mm. And not only they are indulging in tobacco and uh, energy drinks, but at the same time, their lifestyle uh, is uh, social media based with limited exercise mm-hmm. and a lot of consumption of uh, processed food fast food uh, so it's um, it's a it's a double triple or quadruple whammy that uh, in our older cultures uh, where i came from i used to ride bike 5 miles to my school uh, one way uh, and uh, the food was what my mother would pack for me, including some fruits and, and, and stuff. And it was a privilege 
if she would put a candy in there. Mm-hmm. So now I look at my son's diet and uh, uh, unfortunately he is getting a 100 calorie pack of cookies uh, with his uh, snack as well as some candies and uh, uh, and the fruit is the least of the thing that he gets uh, to much to my chagrin hmm. but that's that's uh, that is what we work for him because his body he likes to enjoy the nuggets he likes to enjoy the french fries because somehow his body has reacted to it so coming back to our issue i think it's a combination of multiple factors and um, it is contributing significantly to obesity in this country both men and women unfortunately and those those kind of permissive eating habits uh, if you are eating a double mac burger you certainly cannot stop your child from eating a double mac burger sure and uh, in fact uh, uh, sometimes you give our half mac burger to your son <laughs> because you want him to have more so to speak so that young son ends up eating 2000 calories of enriched processed meal which causes uh, hyperinsulinemia as soon as they eat it mm-hmm. and 2 hours later even th- even though they are full they still feel hungry yeah. and we stop again for another bite to eat so i think it's a, it's a social food excess problem with the limited insight as to what our body needs and what we are putting into our body so age old cliche is i live to eat that we practice now in this country as opposed to i eat to live yeah and i think we should move towards okay if i'm hungry i'll eat some food but because my main purpose is to enjoy a healthy long prosperous life i feel like i i i mean anybody who's spent any time with me knows that i could spend hours and hours and hours diving into the state of our culture with dietary intake and its contribution to chronic disease um it is it is uniquely saddening though i go from a ranting aggressive kind of posture when i speak about it with adults to one of just sadness when i think about the impact it's having on y- young children uh and and what it it is setting them up for metabolically in the very near future for them and it seems to be accelerating and intensifying simultaneously um back to um adults who so the listeners of this show are v- very um it's it's a bit of a tech, technical group they're they're not super super technical but there are several of our listeners who do enjoy some of the technicalities of the subjects that we talk about and for for those folks, can you help us understand the different diagnostic tools that we have available? If somebody is worried about, gosh, I wonder if I have any developed cardiac disease. If so, what is a way to think about the best way to work things up? I mean, we have things like calcium scores and cardiac MRIs and stress tests and angiograms and stents and caths and all these things. It, it can feel a little overwhelming for this group, and I'm not the best person to explain to them which tests matter when, but how would you think about or talk to your clients who would come in and, and ask about available imaging and diagnostics? Yeah, I think um, um, that's an interesting um, um, tip of the iceberg, so to speak. Um, so I have a very practical approach to it. Um, there are two different kinds of uh, uh, our patients who come to us and um, there are one group who is concerned about developing heart disease mm-hmm. and the other group that have, they have already have demonstrated heart disease by presenting to the emergency room with strokes or heart attacks or those kind of issues so let's break down into people who are concerned about developing heart disease so um, for them the assessment is what are my risk for heart disease or do i have i developed a heart disease and what can i do to decrease that risk 
or modify that disease if I already have it. Mm -hmm. So if a, a young gentleman comes to me and asks me, okay, I w I'm 40 year old, my father had heart attack at 55 and he was hypertensive. So what can I do to change that trajectory and if I have developed some disease in my system? So the most important first step is we assess their risk profile. And the risk profile include their family history, presence or absence of hypertension or diabetes. We have a cholesterol profile to see if they have inherent tendencies to have that cholesterol profile that puts them at a higher risk. For example, if they have low protective HDL or very high levels of uh, lipoprotein little a, which is a new compound. So we calculate a risk profile like a pre test likelihood of uh, what is their risk. And if they are very high risk, means they turn out to be diabetic and hypertensive with very high cholesterol and low HDL, then clearly that is a high risk group with the uh, likelihood of developing a disease in the next 10 years of more than X percentage. Mm -hmm. These variables can be added to this uh, algorithm that is available online. This is called uh, assessment of cardiac risk at 10 years. And you can put in your age, your gender, your cholesterol, your blood pressure, your sugars, and the computer spits out a number. And if the number is more than 7.5% risk of development of heart disease, then that identifies your risk, so to speak. So that's the number one we do. Mm -hmm. Based on this risk profile, uh, you know, if the risk is less than 2%, no testing is needed just to assess your uh, modifiable risk factors and manage your uh, non-modifiable risk factors. So if you're a smoker, cutting back on tobacco. If you're hypertensive, manage your blood pressure. If you're diabetic, uh, aggressive management of diabetes. If your cholesterol profile is elevated, then manage the cholesterol profile. In certain patients who are intermediate risks, say 5% risk of heart disease in the next 10 years, then we recommend certain non-invasive tests such as a calcium cardiac score or carotid ultrasound to see if they have early plaque buildup in these, these tests. For example, if the carotid ultrasound picks up that the lining of the carotid arteries is thick, that means that they already have developed disease because the carotid uh, is uh, a surrogate for the heart, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Similarly, we request a calcium cardiac score, which is a low-intensity CAT scan of the heart, which picks up uh, calcium deposits in the coronary circulation of the heart. And normally, this, the beauty of this test is that the score is zero, which means there is no plaque or calcified plaque in the system, and the likelihood of significant heart disease is very low. Mm -hmm. But if the calcium score is elevated above a certain numbers, then that corresponds to the extent of the plaque, and based on that, further testing may be needed. So if the number is, say, 250 or 300, then we know that they have plaque built up in the system. The next question is, is that plaque reaching a critical point? And that critical point is if it is blocking the heart tube in excess of 70%, because that 70% is considered the cutoff uh, that uh, we may use some therapy or, or, or treatment or intervention or stenting or those issues. So if, if that is the concern, then we request a cardiac stress testing, which is to stress the heart so that we can push the heart to its maximum capacity and see at that maximum capacity if the circulation of the heart is being impacted by various algorithms that we have developed. So if the stress test become positive, say for that matter, it means that some area of the heart has a circulation problem. And based on their symptoms, 
and the location of the stress test findings, they may require a heart catheterization or a computerized tomo arteriogram, CTAs of the heart, which is a dye-injected CAT scan, which is assisted by a computer algorithm that determines, that gives us images of the coronaries of the heart and tells us how big and how extensive the plaque is and if it's obstructing the coronaries. Similarly, the newer development is what we call a hot CAT scan. A hot CAT scan is a, it is a software designed to pick up the plaque and it also gives us a metabolic activity of the plaque. So mm. if the plaque is metabolically active, we call it a hot plaque, which means this plaque is full of cells, it is full of inflammatory markers, and the risk of this plaque rupture is very high, mm. as opposed to a cold plaque or a calcified plaque in which there are very few cells and the risk of this plaque rupture is very low. So we call it a stable plaque. So that's how we address future directions uh, to identify hot or soft or active or inactive plaques and direct therapy against such entities. And that's a, it's a, C, it's a heart CT? So it's a cardiac CT cardiac, cardiac or CTA, computer stomach arteriogram of the heart. Uh, it is done in various centers, mm -hmm. and uh, usually it's a high-frequency uh, multiple scanners. We have a 128 scanner uh, that within three minutes, it takes the entire heart pictures from 128 different scanners, and the computer reconstructs a 3D dimension of the heart, and then computer algorithms eliminate soft tissue and just highlights the coronary circulation mm -hmm. with contrast, that we can identify uh, the plaque buildup and then a metabolic equivalent is generated to see which plaque has high cell count or temperature wow. count. I didn't realize that about the hot and the cold component. So I think it, it, it probably would be, uh, would be worthwhile to kind of, you know, for certain populations who are asymptomatic mm -hmm. and they turn out that they have a hot plaque the question would be what to address and how quickly to address that. Mm -hmm. Because most heart attacks happen, 50% of heart attacks happen in a 50% blockage that we otherwise would not treat or stent. So this CAT scan, for example, if that 50% blockage is very hot or unstable, you might intervene. then early. I would be in favor of uh, creating a what we call a closed or, or, or controlled um, uh, 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 intervention so as to protect, prevent this plaque from rupturing in the middle mm -hmm. of night and causing what we call an acute heart attack. That's a fascinating, I think what I'll do is I'll take that information and create a nice infographic with a workflow of kind of how to think about that. That is, that is a really, um, where does a cardiac MRI come in? So um, the MRI is an extension of um, uh, various cardiac testings. So, for example, you can have an MRI to assess if the heart muscle is weak and you want to find out if this heart muscle is weak because of damage, scar tissue, inflammation, uh, and, and you ask for an MRI of the heart. And the, if the MRI picks up that most of the heart muscle is replaced by scar tissue, then you know you have a serious problem. Is it a way to think about it, too, like a cardiac MRI would be more to evaluate structural components as opposed to blood flow circulation with the CTA? Actually, all uh, MRI have now um, applications in which you can assess the circulation Interesting. Uh, as well as structural component of the heart as well as anatomical features of the heart and some various valve structures. But most importantly, we are using extensively as to the anatomical and structural components of the heart muscle. Um, for example, if somebody wants to have a bypass and they have multiple blockages in the heart, but the heart is weak, the question is, if I fix the blockage, will the heart recover? So if, 
For example, if I tell them, hey, listen, this heart is full of scar tissue, even if you do the bypass, it will not recover, then there's no point subjecting these patients to bypasses because we have that information ahead of time that this heart will not respond to circulation improvement. So if you do an MRI for that patient and their heart is, quote-unquote, non-viable, which means most of that is dead or replaced by scar tissue, then we will not subject them to bypass. Huh. This, I'm, I'm like going back to school here. This is great. Thinking about these things. Um, what, what are things that you wish that everyone understood about heart disease that that you find most people don't is is there something if you could wave a magic wand and 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 the community that you serve would have a deeper understanding of a particular topic or two or a fact or two what 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 would that thing be so i i have a pretty primitive assessment so to speak so we are all human beings mm-hmm. which means we are a a, an animal, so to speak, and we have, you know, our our our, our various organs are subjected to various uh, injuries uh, based on where we live, how we process food, the kind of stress that we put on our body. So, if you are a person living in 2020, uh, you have to see, okay, what are the various factors affecting my human being as a person and you ask yourself okay what are things out there they're trying to kill me mm-hmm. or damage me or cause problems for me and i can see okay i'm going to age with time so i can't change that but if i am putting extra stresses on my body i need to minimize those stresses so as to prolong my longevity um if if you know that this particular food has serious issues, then I would avoid those. If I have diabetes and I knowingly don't take care of it, then that's unfortunate. But uh, diabetes, aggressive control with appropriate dietary and medical management is paramount Mm -hmm. because diabetes will catch up with you. Similarly, if you have high-risk behavior, tobacco, alcohol, multiple stimulants, you know, those are very modifiable risk factors that will hurt you as a physical human being. So from that perspective, I put myself in one corner and I look across the table and say, okay, what are various things that are going to impact me Mm -hmm. and impact my heart, impact my brain, impact my kidneys? And what can I do to modify them or seek help to see what can I do to so as to protect myself and prolong my life and have less medical issues uh, going with it. I think it's a really healthy way to think about things. I mean, that is not too far from my North Star, which is I want my folks to live as long as possible at the highest level that is possible for them based on all of the variables that you outlined. And if your primary goal, if that is your goal, if your goal is longevity with vibrancy and you're not really serious about eliminating behaviors that will contribute to ending your life through cardiac heart disease, it's a really unfortunate situation because it probably won't end with a long, vibrant life. You'll probably end up with, um, progressive chronic heart disease that ultimately can be debilitating and, and, and cause an either unnecessarily miserable uh, existence or a tragically early exit. Yeah. Um, so I would urge all the listeners to at least five, get all these five variables that you need to calculate your heart risk. And what were those again? And obviously age and gender are two of them. Mm-hmm. But please check your sugar, mm-hmm. check your cholesterol profile, get your blood pressure. Mm-hmm. These five variables, and you can download uh, the risk calculator on your computer. You can punch in cardiac risk calculator, and you put in these numbers. It'll spell out your risk profile for the next 10 years. If the risk profile is in excess of 
development risk, then you need to seek care as to what can you do to modify your risk profile. If the risk profile is zero or less than two, you're doing fantastic. Keep doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And clearly at this point, and frequently calculate that risk every two years, Uh uh, every year or every two years, so that you know exactly where you stand. If you have a family history of premature heart disease, premature heart disease is uh, any cardiac or stroke-like events in men before the age of 55, uh, that puts you at a premature uh, atherosclerosis. And so that is an independent risk factor. That means something is going on in the metabolic profile that you need to identify. Uh, So that is always ask your first-degree relatives, your brother, your uh, if your brother had disease at a young age, that automatically means that there is some component mm-hmm. that you need to identify. So these are a few of the basic things that all of us should do. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, that risk calculator is a great resource. We'll be sure to link to that. That's not something that I use regularly but need to. Um, what specific area or areas are you most excited about in your field in the next one to five years, things that are on the horizon that maybe aren't mainstream that um, that that we we should be paying attention to. Um, so um, the bioinformatics, uh, which uh, based on genetic marking uh, to identify certain gene pools that puts you at a very high risk for premature diabetes or atherosclerosis, or similar uh, chronic conditions. I think uh, that is on the horizon and pretty soon will be available for increasing number of diseases. Actually, it is available for many of uh, rare issues at present, but I'm waiting uh, patiently, um, earnestly to see if uh, a genetic pool assay is available that predicts uh, your uh, risk for heart disease in the next uh, five, 10 years, so to speak. So basically you send a sample just like uh, for any other condition and the blood sample or tissue sample is subjected to identify these gene markers which have been isolated from other populations with aggressive disease. So if you have those genes at age 20, 25, then you know that I'm going to develop this condition in my 30s or 40s. And so that is going to be the biggest advancement that I'm thinking, which would be early identification based on genetic markers Mm -hmm. and then customized treatments for these individuals so as to prevent significant cardiac events. I'm hearing a lot of the subspecialists that I'm talking to talking about genetics being kind of... um on the forefront of their excitement radar because of the ability to identify either specific diseases super early or clearly identified high risk groups because of the genetic marker, uh, very early. Um, uh, that, that, that is the, the, you know, we've mapped the human genome. Craig Venter did that. It's been 20 something years. Um, and we've had all this data, but we didn't have any wisdom from it. We're starting to now see some sort of critical mass tilt where we now start are starting to understand what some of these sequences are, how to identify them, what they mean. And that is exciting for a guy who mm-hmm. does tailored medicine to, to think about implementing the genomic component into medication selection, risk stratification, early disease identification, uh, that gets me very excited because especially in these high risk groups, anticipation and speed is the game. Yeah. I mean, if you can prevent it way early, then it's an, it's a complete iceberg that you mm. just go around. You... Um, uh, absolutely. However, um, some of the, um, uh, other, um, issues have, uh, been, Uh, thwarting this progress uh, simply because I would recommend this for individuals who have family history of premature disease or who have other indicators of uh, high-risk probability of developing disease. 
because this tool unfortunately is a two-edged sword and in our present era of insurance companies and healthcare management issues may use it to um, exclude mm-hmm. uh, patients with the high risk genetic profiles which will create a whole lot of issues that we don't want so uh, that is the biggest issue of how this new entity uh, will be available and uh, Uh, rather than being used for betterment of uh, our population, I'm afraid that it will be used to exclude high-risk population so that uh, their risk is not covered, creating a whole issue of of, uh, social and medical uh, exclusion. That's certainly a vulnerability, and it's always been a kind of an ongoing chronic smoldering fear around these genetic profiles about all this data getting in the hands of people who have the ability to say yes or no to treatments or even coverage or care. Um, And that'll be interesting to see the moral, ethical, legal things flesh out as more and more of this comes online. It's going to be fascinating to see how our culture kind of absorbs it and actually chooses to manage it. Um, but it's certainly a risk that people need to be aware of. That uh, risk calculator website is CV, so Charlie Victor, riskcalculator.com, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Dr. Malik, what did I not ask you that I forgot or should ask you that, that you wish I would have? I think uh, some of the basic issues of regular exercise, physical activity, eating a lot of plant-based food, Uh, are the two easiest things that can be added to our lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Um, And it requires a little bit of effort. Uh, Each time you sit down to eat, you have to ask yourself, where is my protein coming from? And I would like for it to be plant-based. And even if there's no protein, it doesn't matter because most of the beef is actually of vegetable origin. They eat the grass and make the protein. Mm-hmm. So if the cow can make the protein from the grass, humans can make the protein from animal source, from plant sources without requiring uh, the animal intermediary. Plus, it's the carbon footprint of consuming beef is adding to environmental issues. So my motto to all my patients is uh, one less burger and one less straw. And and if you implicate that, it's going to help your health as well as it will decrease the carbon print uh, to prolong this, the environment, decrease the impact on the environment, and may allow our younger generations to live longer and protect this environment and this planet because that's the only thing we have. It sure is. And it's our only lap around the track. Mm-hmm. Um, how do people get a hold of you who want to find out more about you, your services, uh, or to loop you in for their cardiac care? Um, anytime. Uh, I'm available on the website. You can reach my website, Center for Diagnostic and Therapeutic Cardiology. You can search me using my name, Farooq Malik in Nashville. Uh, you can reach me at my my, uh, my email, farooq.malik at hcahealthcare.com. And uh, you can reach out uh, uh, by on the yellow pages if you're still using it. <laughs> but on social media, you can reach out uh, via Facebook or Instagram, those links are all available. Um, We are here to help, but most importantly, um, uh, you have to be an equal, if not better, participant in your own health. We, I I couldn't be more grateful for your time. Uh, You you bring a lot of wisdom and insight, and, and I think clarity to a topic that is, I don't think anybody's in the dark about how important it is, but I think there is a lot of noise around what really matters. And it is fascinating to me coming from the mouth of a man who you only deal with cardiac disease, the punchline being, we need to stop smoking, we need to be more active, we need to pay attention to the food we put in our mouth, we need to be more intentional, we need to take ownership of our activities and behavior and modifiable behaviors that will affect our health. And on one hand, it's very, very complex and it's very fancy and we have all these things. On the other hand, it's quite it's quite simple, the things that are most impactful. 
you know, not eating, um, not eating food that wasn't food a hundred years ago. So moving away from processed foods, really focusing on a whole food, um, regimen, looking at not putting chemicals and toxins in our bodies that trigger downstream inflammatory processes and fuel the flames of chronic disease. It's being active because of the design is to be powerful, active as a human being and and getting back to those things. Um, they still work. The basics still work really, really well. And, um, any famous last words? Um, set an example for your kids Mm. because they are watching you. So if you have no say in stopping them from eating fast foods, if you are indulging in fast foods. So if you eat healthy and you change your diet to a plant-based diet and you exercise, that will be a tremendous role model for your kids because eventually, you know, you transmit those behaviors to them Mm -hmm. by doing things that you actually are preaching. They will model your behavior. I think that's incredible words of wisdom. Dr. Malik, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. I want to thank you so much for your attention. Listen, I don't take it for granted. It means the absolute world to me. You can find out more about today's episode at brentwoodmd.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find the show notes, all the related links to this episode, and tons of other resources. If you haven't already subscribed, please do so. And if you've already subscribed, then it would mean so much to me if you left a review. If you think we'd be a good fit to work together, or you would just simply like to know more about the concierge services that I provide my private clients, email us at membership at brentwoodmd.com. And now for the obligatory disclaimer, this podcast is for general information only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or the giving of medical advice as no doctor patient relationship has been formed. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should seek the advice of their own medical professional providers.